the details of the Trump indictment and the Republican reaction. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the Sage of Authenticity Woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Made In and Waterstone. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, Friday afternoon or evening, we get the actual text of the Trump classified documents indictment, and it's pretty widely considered damning. There's the retention of the documents um, themselves, which uh, le- left a lot to be desired. Totally how I'd retain classified documents, just a bunch of random boxes moved from one place to the other with their contents spilling out. A couple very telling and hilarious photos of these boxes with classified documents stacked up on the stage at Mar-a-Lago, put into the bathroom at, at one point that has a very, very fine looking chandelier. In it, and then you have the details of the obstruction charges, which are extraordinary as as well. Trump telling uh, one of these lawyers who had collected some of the documents that the government was trying to get back that if they're really bad ones, he could just kind of pluck them out of this package he had. And Trump made a plucking motion, you know, <laughs> suggesting he should just simply destroy them. So, what do you make of the indictment now that we've seen it in black and white? Rich, probably the strongest defense that you can put forth for Trump and the way he kept that classified information is that there's no way any Chinese spy or any other hostile power was going to be able to get into Mar-a-Lago and find any of the classified documents. Because the way they were organized, no one would be able to find anything. (laughs) Uh, It appears that, you know, we were having our, here's the list of our most vulnerable spots uh, in our entire you know, U.S. defense system around the globe was filed right next to the takeout menus that were kept in the White House from 2017 or something like that. It looks like an absolute disaster. Um, Friday's morning, Jolt uh, kind of looked at uh, an article by Mark Caputo, who's now with an institution called The Messenger, but he's been a long time. The great. We should refer to him as the great Mark Caputo, as far as I'm concerned. Well, he's, he's really, you know, and he pointed out that there's, in, over the, there's a long history in South Florida of juries rejecting uh, and acquitting uh, both politicians that are famous and celebrities that are famous. And just the general voter pool in in Southern Florida is full of people who are enamored with celebrities and politicians who they probably voted for and who are very skeptical of the government in general. Now, does this mean Trump is guaranteed to get off uh, in this case? No, but it's probably a, a note worth keeping in mind. I write that Friday morning, Friday afternoon, the indictment comes out. It is indeed devastating. It is indeed, you know, assuming everything in the indictment checks out, and we should point out that this is the government side of the story. Trump, once he gets some lawyers, will be able to punch holes in that theory and attempt to, you know, undermine and create doubt about every assertion in that uh, indictment. But it's certainly, you know, with all the pictures of all that kind of stuff, it, it seems self-evident. Trump kept a lot of classified information, classified information that the government has specifically asked for him to return. He said he didn't have it, and he kept it in a site that is nowhere near uh, meets the standards for, for preserving classified information. He broke the law. That's That looks really, really evident. Does it rise to a felony conviction? That's what a jury is going to decide. And all Trump needs is one juror to say, mm, mm-hmm. no, I give Trump the benefit of the doubt. I don't believe what the government's saying. To create a hung jury, 
and at least delay consequences for this, if not, you know, uh, eventually get him acquitted on this. Yeah, it's not um, crazy so I, to think really, that that could happen. Yeah, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen. I'm just saying that's, you know, within the realm of possibility. And we'll see how that shakes out. But I think that's one of the great ironies is that, you know, simply because of the venue. And then, of course, getting Judge Aileen Cannon, probably about the most sympathetic judge Trump could possibly get. This doesn't look like a slam dunk case for the government, um, even though they seem to have, like, literally giant boxes of evidence. And I kind of wonder, you know, by the time people listen to this, I guess the arraignment will have begun down in Miami. There are concerns about this turning violent. Nothing really happened in the indictment in Manhattan a couple months ago, so hopefully it runs smoothly. But there's a little unnerve that, you know, with the angry rhetoric we've heard, not just from Trump, but also from Carrie Lake, also from others. And we'll talk a bit more about Republican reaction in a second. But there's worries that this could turn violent, that some maniac could show up and, you know, try to turn this into January 6, 2.0. Um, I just think it's like it's stupid for a whole bunch of reasons. But I think it's phenomenally stupid to do it in a case that Trump has a probably better than the conventional wisdom suggests of at least emerging with a hung jury, if not acquittal. So, Noah, just it, pretty much every line of this indictment, you're like, yep, no, that that's our boy. I mean, the, the whole caper is so Trump, so relates to his character and the way he's operated for decades has no right to these documents. Government says we want all of them back. It's like, uh, you know, I'll give you half back. <laughs> then they're like, no, we, we want the other half. I'll give you half of those. And then just the amateurish scheming with these lawyers that puts them, you know, there, there's a, a bumbling and ineptitude aspect to this whole thing, but puts them at serious legal risk, right? He, he's acting like they're all kind of mafia lawyers or Roy Cohn who are going to be in, in on these unethical, at least, or illegal schemes to hide these documents from the government. Yeah, I, I don't have any legal background, so I want to state that at the outset. But just the contents of the indictment paint an image that I, I want to depart from Jim's rather sanguine assessment of the president's legal jeopardy. Uh, the indictment lists the documents that he retained, including, quote, defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack and plans for possible retaliation, reta retaliation in response to a foreign attack. At least one of these, some of these documents were shown off to some buddies at uh, at uh, the Bedminster Club. Um, one of them apparently involved maps, uh, documents that detail a potential American military response against a foreign adversary. Very valuable information that should not have been in the president's, former president's hands and certainly shouldn't have been bandied about. As you say, he implicated one of his attorneys in uh, illegal misdeeds, violating uh, the confidentiality agreement that he would otherwise enjoy with his attorney, also in, uh, implicated his valet. Certainly that probably weighs in on why two of his attorneys immediately resigned, um, said they can no longer represent this guy just hours after the thing dropped. Um, Eileen Cannon drew a good judge there, but she was stung by a circuit court for uh, going out of her way in deference to the Trump attorney's requests to a degree that might actually uh, stay her hand if they, if the Trump team, whatever attorneys he gets, and he is presently, I don't believe, uh, represented ahead of arraignment. Arraignment, it's been difficult for him to get counsel. Um, that might stay her hand in their effort to throw out at least some of the evidence that suggests Donald Trump knew exactly what he was doing. They have transcripts that are produced in this indictment that suggest Donald Trump knew that he could have 
declassified this material and did not do so and is unable to do so now, which presently renders them classified documents that he should not be discussing or showing you and was doing that right there in, in the transcript. Um, he only needs to be convicted on one of these counts. There are a lot of them. Maybe he doesn't get a conviction on all of them, but I think it's very difficult to mount a defense against all of them, given the president's essential confession in this indictment has yet to be proven in court. But if it is, I don't, I don't see how a jury that is following the instructions of a judge doesn't see this as a black and white case. So, Charlie, we'll see um, when, when Trump mounts legal, his legal defense. He'll, he will need lawyers to, to do that, of, of course. But he does have a political defense that's very powerful for Republicans, uh, obviously, which is that there's a two-tiered system of justice. And, and Hillary Clinton was caught red-handed in a, a scheme that you know, was in, in the ballpark. I don't know exactly how you want to parse who, who was— uh, who, who was worse or guilty of more wrongdoing, but certainly was an entirely an indictable offense. And Jim Comey and the gang basically rewrote the uh, the laws on the fly to exclude what Hillary had had done uh, from legal um, jeopardy when when that was not what the law said. So they point to that, and you didn't you didn't uh, get you didn't nail Hillary when you had you had a chance. Why are you nailing our guy to the wall so hard? What do you make of that argument? As a rule, I have a great deal of time for that argument, and indeed, I have disagreed in print with Noah, who made the case that just because James Comey got it wrong with Hillary Clinton, which he did, Hillary should have been prosecuted, that doesn't mean that the same standard should be applied to Donald Trump. I think it does mean that. I think that if we are to have stability within the law, we ought to exercise prosecutorial discretion evenly. At the very least, I think it would be a problem if the Comey standard, to coin a phrase, was applied to the first Democrat the case arose for and not to the first Republican. Where I think that this is less relevant than it could have been is that the case the government has presented against Donald Trump is stronger than the case that the government would have made against Hillary Clinton. Not because, necessarily, Hillary Clinton did less wrong, but because Trump, unlike Hillary Clinton, has not done very well at covering his tracks and has, in fact assuming that the transcripts in the indictment are accurate, has essentially admitted it, including the central holding. Now, there is a piece of evidence in there in which Trump tells someone that he has in his possession a document that he didn't unclassify, declassify, mm -hmm. while he was president. That's the case right there. All of that talk about the president's, you know, uh, limitless ability to declassify documents, uh, the president's ability to declassify in his mind goes out of the window because Trump is saying, after he has left the presidency, I didn't declassify this document that I now have 
in my possession. And as such, I think that the case the government is bringing into the courtroom, which of course still needs to be proved, is stronger than the one that it would have been able to bring against Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton responded to the news that she had been caught by acting like a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Not ethically. I'm not praising her. I'm not defending her. I would still have taken her to court. But she behaved instantly like a lawyer, and Trump didn't. Trump behaved like a reckless narcissist. The The non-legal observation I have about this is that while it is important and salient when we are discussing the legal question, oh, look, he's just like Hillary Clinton, is not the standard that I want in a Republican nominee. Donald Trump is not the president of the United States, and he is not the Republican nominee yet. The moment someone says, well, what he did was just the same as what Hillary Clinton did, leave aside the legalities of it, he is signaling, to me at least, don't nominate the guy. Mm-hmm. I don't want Hillary Clinton to be president. I never did. I thought what she did demonstrated a rank arrogance and disregard for the United States. And if this indictment is correct, we have seen the same thing from Donald Trump. And that is disqualifying. And yes, if it is proven that Joe Biden was as reckless as Trump and as Hillary seemed to have been, then that goes for him as well. But surely... Leave aside the law. Surely, politically, the correct response to this is not, well, Hillary got away with it, so Trump has to. But let's not nominate the guy who behaved like our arch nemesis, Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, Charlie, would, would you, you would prefer Trump not to have been indicted on this, the prosecutor stay his hand and, and exercise similar discretion to what Comey did? No, because I think that the case is stronger. So we're not comparing like with like. I think that if the case that the federal government had was of equal strength. Like, like contained- he, equal strength, sorry to interrupt, meaning Trump took this stuff down there. He shouldn't, shouldn't have. He was reckless. And then when he got caught, he did all the loyalty things to, to make it better. Or, yeah, or- if it didn't have all sorts of admissions and boasts in there, in which he says, in no uncertain terms, providing that they're accurate representations, look, these are classified documents that I didn't declassify, aren't they cool? Then the case would be a lot weaker. Mm -hmm. But they are in there. And Hillary was smart enough, evil enough, if you like, not to do that. She was also smart enough, evil enough, if you like, to destroy evidence. But she didn't destroy evidence and then get caught talking to her lawyers about how she tended to destroy evidence. So I just think that as a legal question, the case against Trump is not the same as the one against Hillary. It is unfortunately, from his perspective, much stronger. Yeah, and and, and this this also, the whole thing was just so avoidable. You know, all he had to do is give him back. That's all he had to do. (laughs) And he wouldn't have been indicted. The country wouldn't be dragged through what could be a crisis that, that lasts for years. Well, that's just um, it, right? But Jim, what do you make? I'm, I'm sorry, I What's think that? we need to emphasize that point a little bit more. That really, I think, probably don't want to put words in anybody's mouth. But does anybody think that there would have been an indictment brought down if Donald Trump had produced in one of the two times that he had to produce these documents, all of them? Would there be an indictment? No, no. So there wouldn't be no, a standard. I, so it wouldn't be the standard would be an applicable standard across the board. This is why it's so different to the Bragg case. It's not just that the Bragg case was weak and obviously politically motivated and hinged upon a legal theory that is patently absurd. It's that 
the Bragg case did everything it could to get at Trump. Trump was the target. Bragg sat in his office and worked out on a corkboard how to get Donald Trump. In this case, it's hard to cast it as a witch hunt because he was given two chances, it mm-hmm. seems, to make the whole thing go away. And through sheer obstinacy, he declined to do so. So, Jim, a couple of the defenses that are being made of of Trump, and we'll s- stick in the legal realm because we'll get in the political realm in, a, in the next segment, are one, the Presidential Records Act allows a president to just decide what he uh, gets and, and doesn't get. And he has, for some reason, I don't know where people have come up with this, like a two-year grace period where, where he, he can just hold stuff and decide what, what he keeps and and what he doesn't. And Andy McCarthy has demolished this argument on our website. The president gets to keep personal records as defined by Congress. And those are, you know, when when Hillary was deleting her emails, she says, you know, it's like wedding plans and, and yoga scheduling, that sort of stuff, if your president would indeed be personal records, but you have to make a determination that they're personal records and they do have to actually fit the definition of personal records. Neither of those apply here. So Trump had had no right to these uh, records, even you know, putting aside the, the issue of the, the, class, uh, the classified material. And then there's a Lindsey Graham argument. How possibly could you charge Donald Trump with espionage? You're charging him under the Espionage Act. You're saying he's a spy. And of course, uh, Andy has also demolished this because just because the title of the Espionage Act doesn't mean that everything in the Espionage Act, every offense under the Espionage Act is actual espionage. You know, if you charge Hillary, it would have been under the Espionage Act because of the reckless um, handling of these sort of documents. And with Trump, it's, it's the willful mishandling of these documents. Well, Rich, if Andy demolished it, I don't know what's left for me to say. Um, that, you know, yes, these are demolished arguments. Um, when I wrote the jolt earlier this week, I made a reference to the, in the past, we've had other figures who have had classified information that they've taken to their private offices or uh, used in their non-secure emails or things like that, and they hadn't suffered uh, legal consequence. Sandy Berger did get, uh, as, you know, did have to pay some fines. Uh, and I think he got a, a you know uh, probation or something like that. So occasionally, you know, if you're a big enough name, maybe they make you pay a fine. Everybody else, Joe Biden so far, Mike Pence. There's no indication that there'll ever be any criminal offenses against them. Um, the government, the, the existing rules for people. Uh, for both presidents and vice presidents taking documents away. I think the government, by and large, is very lenient uh, compared to the way that members of the uniformed services or members of the intelligence community that aren't famous, that aren't names you don't recognize, they get the book thrown at them. They don't take any excuses. They don't understand any, oh, you know, yeah, you got a lot of papers on your desk and it just ended up in the wrong box as you were moving out, you know. Uh, they don't get to use those excuses. So I think the argument that, oh, the law is be you know, mm-hmm. is so draconian and it's so, you know, no, no, this is, you know, Trump had ample opportunity to try to make this right when he was informed that he was in violation of the law. And they, you could argue the National Archives really bent over backwards to try to allow him a chance to avoid this precise scenario. And only his own stupid arrogance and stubbornness put him in this situation right now. And it's, you know, as many have observed, all the lawyers who were trying to save Donald Trump from himself are now being indicted as well. He gets everybody else into trouble along with him. 
because he just won't listen to somebody else saying you got to return those things. In the end, the Sonny Bunch theory of my boxes, they're my boxes. I love them. They're mine. You're not allowed to have that. Mine. Um, then in the end, pro- Trump's entire philosophy towards this was that of an angry toddler. And now it's caught up to him with potentially very serious legal consequences. Yeah. So a lot depends on which disparity you look at. You can look at the disparity of Hillary being charged, uh, not being charged, and Trump being charged. Or you can look at the disparity that if anyone else did what Trump did, they would be so locked up. I mean, they, they'd be going straight to jail. So let's do multi-barreled exit question to you first, Noah Rothman. If convicted prior to the Republican primaries, which is not going to happen, this is, this is an entirely theoretical timetable, but if he were convicted before Republicans started caucusing and voting in the primaries, it would diminish Donald Trump's chances of winning the nomination, yes or no? Yes, it most certainly would, um, as it should. Now, we can probably debate the degree uh, and I would probably say just a minimal degree, but it would have a certain effect. Can I just say one brief thing about Lindsey Graham's argumentation here? Because I have mm-hmm. absolutely no sympathy for this line of thought. He's attempting to argue on the based on the assumption of your own ignorance that because this this uh, the act, the Espionage Act, is a scary name, that it shouldn't apply here, as though it is not applied very often to people who do, as Jim said, exactly what this thing is. And we don't know the extent to which this information was compromised by hostile foreign powers. We know the Chinese had assets at Mar-a-Lago. We know that for a fact. And when this information dropped, I remember thinking, like, imagine the talking to the foreign intelligence services are giving their operatives today. Dimitri, did you check guest bathroom? Like, we honestly have no idea the extent to which this stuff was compromised. And it's foolish for us to get out on that limb because it could be sawn off, sawn off from out from under us at any given moment. Yeah, if Lindsey Graham is now adopting this as his standard, then I want to know why he voted against the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. If the titles, if the titles, if the titles the just positive, yeah. he must be in favor of, of inflation. So Charlie, a conviction would diminish Trump's chances of winning the nomination? Yes or no? I'm in a mood at the moment, and I think the answer is no. I just don't think he can do anything that's going to hurt him. I think the Republican primary electorate has decided to lose with Trump in 2024, and it's going to ride and die. Jim Garrity. I'm a qualified yes, but I'm going to point out it's going to be it – would, it would hurt Trump for all the wrong reasons. Meaning the correct reason is, well, geez, Louise, a guy who does something like this, you know, gets convicted of it. He should be our nominee. And instead, it's going to be, you know, this is just going to make him tougher to get elected. And there's just too many independents, too many other Americans who wouldn't vote for him because of this. So this is why I can't vote for him. This kind of, you know, by proxy ricochet uh, aspect, it hurts him. Yeah. So I can also say yes. I mean, it might be like a 0.5% chance. It might be very, very minimal to the point of almost being undetectable, perhaps. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes. So Noah, if Trump were convicted before a general election, were the nominee and convicted before a general election, which I also do not think will happen. The timing is not going to work for that either, but let's stipulate it for purposes of this question. He, there's no way he would win. A general election, yes or no? Yes, being no way that he would win. <laughs> well, I would never say no way that he can win a general election because unforeseen exogenous events happen and bounces bounce in weird ways. You just can't predict the future like that. But the 
likelihood is very low, especially if in the general election, the candidate decides to maybe campaign against the biggest vulnerability of their opponent. <laughs> Jim Geary. Just to clarify again, Rich, no just, let's means just, yes. Let's, let's not do no yes. Let's just say there's – would there be no way? Would there be no way? Uh, Joe Biden is absolutely beatable even by an extraordinarily uh, flawed and convicted opponent because he's 80 years old. You never know when he's going to fall off a stage. You never know when he's going to babble incoherently, making America believe that he has Alzheimer's. And – uh, you know, the state of the economy could always tank and the state of the country could be bad. China could invade, terrorist attacks could hurt. There's all kinds of variables that could make Joe Biden un impossible to reelect. It just is that Trump would be probably the weakest possible option against him. Charlie Cook, no way. Well, exactly. It can happen. But just think of what we're having to do here to set up this scenario when we don't have to. I mean, we could do this with anything. We could say, <laughs> is it possible that Trevor Lawrence could win a Super Bowl for the Jaguars with a broken leg? And you go, well, that seems pretty unlikely. Maybe we shouldn't Maybe we shouldn't make him the starting quarterback with a broken leg. And then the other person goes, well, what if he was playing a game and there was a meteor shower and it knocked out half of the defensive line and then the, the cornerback suddenly fell over because there was a cat on the field and then there was a guy with a laser point. Like, okay, but don't start him in the team. Dang it, Charlie. That's the, that, Charlie, that's the Jets playbook for this year. Year. Don't let it out like that. I mean, I, I know I'm a broken record on this, but for goodness sake, we don't have to do this as a movement. We don't have to do this as a party. Yes, it is possible for Trump to win. Why would you put yourself in a position where you have to rely on all of these things happening over which you have no control? What if there's a recession? What if there is a real estate crisis? What if Joe Biden falls off the stage? What if Joe Biden dies? What if Trump is acquitted? Yeah, what if, what if, what if? But are we kidding ourselves? <laughs> Uh, so I entirely agree with Jim. He 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 could win, uh, but I take I take Charlie's points. And the problem here is the 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 wedge, the delta between the Republican reaction to these indictments and the public's reaction at large, especially independents' reactions uh, to these indictments. So they, they've been helping him so far in the primaries, and they'll they'll obviously be uh, a major weight. Uh, around his his neck in a general election. Final prong of this multi-pronged exit question. Epic exit question to you, Noah. This is a very easy yes or no, Jim. I, I think this would be very easy. Donald Trump will go to jail. Yes or no? Is it easy? If he's convicted well, of... Well, the yes or no aspect is, is simple. Okay, it's fine. Easily yes. understood. If he is convicted, yes. So you, you believe uh, he'll he'll be convicted and go to jail? Well, okay. He'll probably get... Uh, it's so hard to say. It's harder if to say than to you think it is, Rich. If you harder. have to guess. Okay, fine. Yes. Okay, yes. We got a yes on the board, Jim. No, but I think I could see him having a low jack and house arrest. Uh, low jack around mm -hmm. his ankle and uh, house arrest or something like that at Mar-a-Lago. House arrest. Charlie. No. Yeah, I'm also a no. It'll find some way to wiggle out of it. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor. This episode, Made in Cookware. We have made in frying pans here in our kitchen, and they are awesome. Made in was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurants. 
and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made restaurant-quality cookware. Maiden's award-winning non-stick cookware. That's really important, people. Non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. We found this all to be true in the Lowry household. Our maiden pans are great to handle, cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. And I say this as the guy who spends most nights standing at the kitchen for an hour or so cleaning dishes to get them in the dishwasher. I don't understand why dishes have to be washed more or less to get them into the uh, washing machine without them coming out with uh, stuff stuck all over them, but that's a, a another issue. Maybe Maiden will go into the washing machine business as well. So anyway, Maiden Cookware gets our highest recommendation and especially my wife's recommendation. And right now, editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Maiden. For full details, visit maidencookware.com slash editors. That's maidencookware.com slash editors. So, no, we've more or less had universal Republican reaction to the indictment. Some exceptions. Chris Christie hammered Trump for how he conducted himself here. Nikki Haley has conceded maybe it wasn't so great if it's if it's actually true what's what's in the indictment. Otherwise, the um, message shouted from the rooftops from every Republican whether the backbenches of Congress or in the presidential race, is that th- this is this is unfair and there's a two-tiered system of justice. Yeah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I had not seen um, Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence or Tim Scott address this directly. Have you? I don't think I have. Oh, they have, yeah. You mean the indictment? Yeah, well, to the, no, to the, the political vulnerabilities. That's what we're talking about right now, the po- the, po- the politics of it. Right? I haven't seen that. I haven't, oh, I haven't. Um, no, like said, this is going to make them hard, harder for him to win? Right, what Chris Christie said. Yeah, no, they, they've, they've said two-tier justice and then, yeah. Okay, so they're and, not and addressing it directly. Duck, duck and cover. So they're not addressing it directly. Because, no, that's that's not applicable. I'm sorry, I reject that. The two-tier justice system was applied to Hillary Clinton. What is being applied to Donald Trump is the standard to which we should all have to abide before a court of law. That is the standard. Hillary Clinton was the beneficiary of a two-tier justice system. Donald Trump is not. Nor would any of us be. Nor has anybody else who's not a household name. And the only person I've seen in the Republican Party actually address this directly is, is Chris Christie, who at least evinces the courage of his own convictions. He's reached the logical conclusion of his own argument, which is that Donald Trump did this to himself and he's doing it to you by proxy because he is not evincing any concern for your interests. If he did, he wouldn't have behaved so recklessly. He'd be representing your interests. He's not. He's representing his own. That's the argument. That's the line. That's everybody's, should be everybody's line. But there is this, they are all hostage to the shadows on the cave wall that convince them that if they are to go too hard against Donald Trump, that they will not benefit from it politically because Republicans do not evaluate Donald Trump as they would a service provider, a representative in Congress, a member of their own families. They don't evaluate him like that. They evaluate him emotionally. That's what they think. That's what they've convinced themselves of. And so they pull their punches. And if you continue to pull your punches, you should get out of the race. 
You should spare your supporters the heartache of you losing after a prolonged uh, pantomime towards running for the presidency because you're not running for the presidency. I don't know what you think you're going to get out of this. Maybe you think that the chips will fall the right way somehow and tropically his support will degrade and you'll be the beneficiary of it. If you're not making the case against Donald Trump, you are not making the case for yourself. And if you're not making the case for yourself, you are not running for the presidency. So, Jim, th this, is, this is a big, big question tactically. Noah and I have gone back and forth on this a little bit before. So do you, do you agree that'd be best just doesn't matter how hot most Republicans are, ordinary Republicans are about about this two-tiered system of justice and what they feel is the unfairness of it. You just, you got to make the case that what he did on the merits is completely wrong. It's uh, extremely harmful to his prospects and do it right now when emotions are, are high. Or does it make sense to to wait, which I, I would tend to do. I, I just don't, I don't think there's any percentage if you're a, a, Ron, a Ron DeSantis and running you know, f full steam ahead into this, this wall where you're, where you're probably not going to get anywhere. But eventually you do, that's where I agree with, with Noah, it's a question of timing and tactics. Eventually you do have to make the case that uh, th this was wrong. We don't want to go with this, with this guy. And DeSantis is making it, but just extremely... Uh, between the lines, really between the lines, really, I break out the microscope. Um, if yeah, he'll say like I saw him on Fox and Friends yesterday or the day before, maybe late last week. I forget all all runs together, but he's like, I'm gonna get it done. I guarantee you, I'm gonna win with no excuses. So you know, it's all that's that's telegraphing yeah. it. But again, it's, mean, not, it's, it's not coming out and saying. Is there anything in this forty-eight page indictment and all of these charges? Does any of it warrant more than a nudge, nudge, wink, wink? You know what I'm getting at? Type vibe. You know, like if you're mm -hmm. if you're running for the Republican presidential nomination, your name is not Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is the fundraiser, is the front runner by a considerable margin. You know, this indictment is a gift wrapped present to you, right? This is something as much as, you know, oh, Trump's going to be able to say he's the victim and the deep state is out to get to it. Like what's described in there is just spectacularly reckless, unforgivable, inexcusable, uh, unjustifiable, repeated behavior. And so the person who so far seems to have handled this best, much to my surprise, I'll be honest, is Nikki Haley, when she said, you know, President Trump, if this is if everything in the indictment is true, President Trump was incredibly reckless with our national security. I kind of think that's the like, why why is not everybody else not saying it? Why is why is Ron DeSantis incapable of saying that? Why isn't he saying that? Why wouldn't you say, look, I got a lot of problems with the Department of Justice, but you can't you know, you can't have documents that list our greatest weaknesses and where we're most vulnerable attack to attack and store them in the bathroom. Like that, that this is a slam dunk. This is an open goal. The the deep well, so I mean, the reason he's not doing it, obviously right is that he he's afraid of being perceived as attacking Donald Trump. Yeah, at a time when when it, when the, Republicans you're believe behind. this being you, If you're you're twenty points behind at least, why are you? Wait, well, oh, I don't want to be perceived as a t attacking Donald Trump. What position are you in? <laughs> right? Nobody is, as I put it in today's morning jolt, nobody is going to switch their vote from Donald Trump to Ron DeSantis because Ron DeSantis turned out to be such a good defender of Donald Trump. Right? The people who are who want the best defense of Donald Trump are not going to vote for you, Ron DeSantis, or anybody, or Tim Scott, or anybody else. There's no way you can suck up to Donald Trump enough to get the nomination. 
The only way you can overtake him is to beat him, which requires you to make an argument. And I think it's entirely reasonable, even if Republican voters don't want to hear it, or at least some chunk of them do, to say, you know what? This is bad. This is dumb. This is not what a responsible president does. If you nominate me, I will make better decisions, and I will not get us into stupid situations like this. Mm-hmm. Aren't you, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, you, for, a, for five minutes on the campaign trail, I want Ron DeSantis to be possessed by the spirit of Charlie Cook, and I just want him to start shouting, aren't you tired of this? Because I, you know, like this, <laughs> this is, you know. I think he will. I think it, it will come around to that eventually. Uh, you know, just take a long time to get there. We'll see. Yeah, well, it's it's June. Charlie. I don't think that anything matters. <laughs> and I have come to the conclusion the only point at which we will be rid of Donald Trump as a negative force in our politics is when he does the honorable thing and dies. <laughs> so, What have you seen, Rich, since 2015 that has suggested that the Republican primary electorate is going to give up on Donald Trump. The country, clearly, is not into Donald Trump. It wasn't particularly into Donald Trump in 2016. He got 46.1% of the vote. It wasn't into him in 2018 or 2020 when he lost, or 2022 when he was the sole impediment against Republicans taking more House seats and more Senate seats. But the primary voters... Every time this happens, his support either stays the same or goes up. I don't think anything matters. I think this is an intractable problem that cannot be solved by anything other than him dying in his sleep. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of evidence for that, obviously. His, his support, you know, did, did, he was rocked by the, the midterms, you know, just for a, a couple months there. But even prior to the Bragg indictment, he was occasionally popping above 50 in in some polls, not all of them, but the the Bragg indictment was an inflection point. This one obviously isn't going to hurt him. I still think there's a chance, you know, Iowa caucus goers decide February, March, when this has all been absorbed and is not in the heat of the moment so much that there there is a potential an argument that this guy has failed us in all sorts of ways and would lose again. Uh, can can cut against him, but do I have confidence in that? No. Would I bet on that? No. I think one thing, Noah, just more general kind of punditry thought. I think DeSantis um, has he kind of like you couldn't engineer in a lab, as far as I'm concerned, a better message or positioning to take on Donald Trump uh, w- with the. With the stipulation that the the party is heavily MAGA, which they've assumed all, all along, and they're right about the question with DeSantis though is just is is he forceful enough? Is he interesting enough? Is he charismatic enough? Is he likable enough? Is he big enough? And you know, no, no pun intended. I think Chris Christie is big enough. He he's a, a big personality. He's forceful. He, you know, he did the CNN town hall the the other night, last night, I guess. And you know, you you want to watch and listen to him. That's a really important quality for a politician. That I just wonder whether DeSantis has, and you know, if he if he doesn't, it's going to be it's another another obstacle, obviously. Ron DeSantis has established for himself a brand of being brave, 
of taking on hard targets, of going against the dominant culture and winning. Um, he's undermining his own brand by behaving in an extremely pusillanimous fashion vis-a-vis -vis Republicans who support Donald Trump. You cannot make the case that this guy is being brave. He's taking on hard targets, come what may. He's not. He's afraid of it. You can see it. We can all see it. He's afraid. And that goes against the core of his appeal. Uh, I've been going off about this Patrick Ruffini analysis of the Republican electorate. I think everybody should check it out. It's on Substack. It's very good. Um, it suggests that, yeah, Republican electorate is MAGA. But MAGA, in a, in a cultural sense, um, not necessarily the MAGA movement that supports protectionist trade policies, that supports high taxes, that supports a, a, a big, you know, unassailable safety net. That's a smaller portion of the Republican electorate. So, too, is the anti-woke stuff. The anti-woke stuff is something that you care a lot about if you have a college degree, if you spend a lot of time on Twitter. That's not the Republican electorate. The Republican electorate is deeply concerned about this, the future of the country, and they're concerned about kitchen table issues. Their pocketbooks... Um, the corruption in the federal government, the border crisis, the increasingly uh, scary threat environment internationally. And that's the sort of thing that Ron DeSantis is positioned to talk about if he gets out of his, his bubble. And he seems to be appealing to a very small slice of the electorate. But he hasn't evinced the kind of bravery that he's established for himself in Florida when going after stuff that Republicans might, might reject or, or might not respond to with as much favor favorability as they respond to the attack on Disney, for example. Because those aren't really hard targets. They're soft targets when you think about the audience he's appealing to. If he's going to become the president, he's going to have to put himself on the line and risk offending some people that he, he might need. Um, he's, he's shown a little bit of that by going after Donald Trump on policy, but those aren't his vulnerabilities among Republicans. So, Jim Garrity, X, a question to you. You are... A Republican politician. You win the Republican nomination. You are elected president of the United States. You've defeated Donald Trump. S sometime in this interim period, he has been convicted and is going to go to jail. You will pardon him. Yes or no? It's very hard to answer that without knowing all the facts of a, you know, how did the trial go? Was there a reason to believe that, you know, Trump's rights were abrogated or there was something unfair about the trial or something like that. Um, and I think the other question would be is if you're, you know, by pardoning, is, is the country on the verge of civil war, right? Is there some sort of grand national, political, ideological, social divide that was exacerbated by Trump's conviction that you feel like as president, you'd feel a need to intervene to ameliorate or med you know, mediate like Ford's pardon of Nixon? Um, that's the scenario I can imagine it. I don't think it's terribly likely, but you know, a lot of roads still ahead of us. Charlie Cook. Is pardoning my only option or can I also throw him down a well? <laughs> you get, I mean, why am I pardoning him? Yeah. If there's overwhelming evidence that there was some corruption in the trial or that his constitutional rights were violated, but if the indictment is correct and he's convicted of having broken the laws that govern the country, then no, of course I'm not pardoning him. No, Rothman. Yeah, I would pardon him both for the sake of national comedy, and I would broadcast that in advance of the election. I broadcast that in the primary to communicate to voters 
that this guy is so festooned with legal baggage, he will never be anywhere near a position of power where he can afford, he can execute a pardon of himself. Is that national comedy or national comedy? Yeah, it's, it could be it could be both. This, <laughs> it depends. You know, Mark, Mark said first is tragedy, then as far as the, the great advantage to this period in our national life, you get to do both at the same time. So I, I'm with Noah. I'd, I'd I'd pardon the guy. Why? So for national comedy, I I, I think it's very bad to have yeah. a former. Just get get this whole this whole nasty era behind us. And I think it's just bad to have a former president of the United States in jail. If he shot people on Fifth Avenue, would you feel the same way? Uh, I would not. Okay, just gonna know the it's, a, it's, a, it's a process. This is a statutory violation. This is not a violation of a commandment from God. Oh no, Trump's violated enough of those. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> Touche. <laughs> With that, let's hear from our next sponsor of this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor advice fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor advice fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor advice funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With its charitable pool trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Please check it out. So, Charlie, we've talked a little bit about this before, but we just have this continued uh, these findings in surveys that the the most adventurous uh, trans positions should uh, men compete in women's sports? Should you uh, give gender affirming, quote unquote, care to minors? All the rest of it just is horribly unpopular with the American public. What do you make of it? I don't understand why those who commission and respond to these surveys are surprised by this. There was a piece in Axios, speaking of comedy, that implied that the reason that supermajorities of Americans who go to church, including, I think, 80% of African Americans, are skeptical toward these radical gender claims is that conservatives keep talking about it. The culture war has got to them. The backlash has moved them off their supportive position. And this is bizarre self-delusion. Born of the idea that if a certain group of people in our culture wake up one morning and decide that an idea is worthwhile, that that, rather than the status quo they are pushing back against, becomes the baseline. This has been the mistake from the beginning. The assumption that just because you say something, it makes it true. And that everyone else will go along with it. And that those who say, hold on a moment, I don't think that's a very good idea, are the ones who are causing the ruckus. They are the ones responsible for the culture war. They are the ones trying to shift public opinion. Of course they're not. 
The claims that are being made by radical trans activists run counter to what people have believed, especially in Western civilization, for hundreds, thousands more years. Of course, the public is sitting there saying, sorry, what? What else did we expect? Did we really think that a few people in marketing agencies and Congress and Hollywood were going to shift our foundational understanding of sex that is born not out of some contingent cultural moment, but out of our human experience, out of the experience that we witness around us in the animal kingdom and always have. I think it is a profound failing of modern progressivism that it believes that society is as malleable as it is, that the whole thing is informed and shaped and moved and melted by language. It's not. So yeah, people are sitting here saying, "Uh, nope, I don't think I believe that. If you compare the way that our newspapers talk about this issue with the polls, you see how out of touch and narrow those newspapers are. Anyone, anyone who says anything that contradicts ideas arrived at yesterday evening is labeled as anti-trans. Meanwhile, a majority of Americans doesn't even believe that transgenderism is a thing. It's not that they're anti it. It's that they don't comprehend it. They think that the fundamental claim is bizarre and they operate and proceed from that premise. So I'm not surprised by that. That I would have assumed. I am surprised at how surprised those who have been trying to affect the social change seem to be that they have not been able to just click their fingers and rewire the world. So, Jim, another notable aspect of this polling is the surveys that have had a uh, time element to them where you can track, you know, where was opinion a year ago, two years ago. There's been a shift against, even further against these sort of adventurous positions. And one reason for this, obviously, is the movement for gay marriage succeeded, well, I mean, thanks to the Supreme Court, but the things were, were headed in that direction anyway, because it associated itself with a kind of uh, cultural conservatism of, of a sort, right? We just why shouldn't we have get married and have stable relationships like like everyone else, and we're not like those those folks in the San Francisco Pride Parade dressed in in black leather. Whereas the the, the trans stuff is just runs against every grain, as Charlie was, was just saying, and it is not trying to portray itself in many instances as the, the culturally conservative position of a sort. And we had a really uh, kind of disgust, disgusting example of this at the, the White House Pride celebration, where they had this Progress Pride flag, which is an increasingly ridiculous banner. I mean, it's completely un- un- unsightly with, with, I don't know, like 16 different stripes in it. Now flying uh, uh, draped over the White House in between two American flags, giving it the pride of place. And you had an activist there, a, a guy who says he's a, a woman now and has fake, fake breasts with his shirt off, jiggling his breasts around. Yeah. So, 
it's worth noting when people talk about you know the controversy over trans rights or something like that, what they really mean is two things. One is, should people who are under age 18 be permitted to undergo, in some cases, like permanent and life-altering surgeries or other hormonal treatments with or without parental consent, which is a, you know, and the second one is what bathroom do people use? And are those born men and who still have male genitalia allowed to use women's locker rooms, women's... Like, oh, and I guess the third one you could say is those who are born men competing in female, in, in women's sports. Th those are the big three. Otherwise, Americans, by and large, don't care what you do in your bedroom. It's a free country. It's a free society. Hook up with whoever you want to hook up with. You may not approve, but it's your life. You make those decisions. It's when you go into those areas where all of a sudden this does become controversial and people's backs do get up and people's, you know, emotions do run hot. Um, now, it, Charlie alluded to the, the way this gets covered. Uh, I, I'm looking at the Daily Mail article. I suspect we'll have an article on this NR. And my guess is this is going to spread very quickly across conservative and right of center media. Uh, Rosé Montoya, a, you know, transgender actress and model and activist, Bore, the, by the way, the Daily Mail uses female pronouns for this article. I'm simply reading it aloud. Uh, bearing her breasts on the lawn of the White House at an event to celebrate pride. Are we topless at the White House? The person recording the clip says as Montoya moves her hands up and down while grinning, covering her bare breasts. Now, I'd like to think that Joe Biden, even in his adult state, if he had seen this, would have said, no, you can't do that here. That's not appropriate. All right. Uh, my guess is, is that most people on the right will sooner or later hear about this incident. My suspicion is, is that most people who are not on the right, who get their news from mainstream news sources, CNN, New York Times, etc., um, will not hear about this and will not ever hear about it because it's, it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the message, as Critical Drinker would put it, uh, who basically if, – if we reported on this, people might think badly of this transgender actress and or uh, transgenders in general. And people should think badly of Rosé Montoya. You're not supposed to behave like this at, on the White House lawn. This is not an Ibiza club. This is not the Playboy Mansion. This is not some crazy place where anything goes. The White House is a secular, sacred space. This is an important spot. This is where Lincoln executed the plan to, you know, to reunite the country at, during the Civil War. This is the, where uh, FDR, made, you know, heard about Pearl Harbor. This is where Truman made the decision to drop the bomb on Japan. This is an important spot. This is not a place where you're supposed to party and go wild. There are a lot of places in this country you can do that. You can do whatever the heck you want. Not in the White House. You're supposed to behave with a certain amount of respect. And I think if this, if I was making some movie, I would have crusty old Joe Biden explaining to this actress or model, this is an important place and you have to behave a certain way. And this is, you know, this is how we salute. This is how we put our hand over our heart for the national anthem. This is why this place is important. Of course, Biden didn't do any of those things. He's 80 years old. He barely knows where he is half the time, it seems. So if wondering why is there hostility to the transgender community, not every person should be judged by the actions of Rose Montoya. But this is the sort of thing that people on the right are going to hear about. And the message is we in this community don't have to treat this location with respect the way everyone else does. The rules don't apply to us. We're different. We're special. There's a reason that our flag is front and center at the White House today and not the American flag. We're different. We're better. We're not like you. We're better than you. We have more rights than you do. We don't have to behave by certain standards of behavior the way you do. And that, my friends, is how you get a great deal of more anti-trans attitudes. So, again, you know, it's not just that what this, you know, actress, this person did. 
it's also how everyone will choose to avert their eyes from what this person did instead of saying, you know what, this is not right, this is not helpful. And the mainstream of America has rights to have its own expectations and standards as well. So Noah, what's your read on public opinion? Uh, so, I mean, I, I can only tag what everybody has said so far because I, co- I, dis- I completely agree with it. It's an example, I think, of how the progressive media monolith does the Democrats increasingly few favors because they assume that they can muscle into the public understanding a completely new interpretation of a theory of societal organization and public morality without having done any of the groundwork, without ever doing any of the the convincing that you would otherwise have to do to usher in that kind of a paradigm shift. As Jim says, you know, this event on the South Lawn, for example, it's divorced from reality to think that the only people who care about decorum on the South Lawn are bigots or people who are cultural, culturally revanchist. Um, this is something that we teach our children that until a couple of minutes ago, you guys were all saying Donald Trump behaved uh, recklessly and irresponsibly with the gravity of the office that he occupied. Are we supposed to forget all this? I think a lot of the public movement in the polling occurred after we started to see a lot of people who are biologically male who went through male puberty participate in women's sports, at which Mm -hmm. point the argument was no longer about fairness, justice, societal rectitude. It was about the provision of indulgences that you do not have access to. So the argument for gay marriage in the 1990s, 2000s that eventually won was fairness, was that this is no skin off your nose. And this is something that these people want to enjoy in the the privacy of their own lives. And what does it matter to you? This argument is different. This argument is you have to suffer. You have to sacrifice in order to address and mitigate some ill-defined historical injustice that you are the, the legatee of, that is bequeathed to you. So, yeah, people reject that because they see unfairness. They see themselves being deprived of opportunities that are being gifted to others who they don't necessarily think are especially deserving. And so, yeah, why wouldn't Americans reject a completely unfair double standard that is being so, applied so no, to so no, you're, 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 you, So you said a, a second ago you think um, you know, they, they haven't really done the, made the argument, they haven't prepared the ground for this, but, but haven't they? Haven't they at least tried? I mean, you have every major publication in America, basically, with some, some exceptions, including NR, adopting their, their lingo and th- their definition, uh, their, their strictures on, on what pronouns you should be use for transgender people and how you refer to them. I mean, that's a huge, that, that, that moved the ball for them, terms, right? Absolutely not. How far are we, how far was Windsor and Obergefell from Stonewall? This was a generational fight. It took a long time to popularize the idea that homosexuality wasn't a deviant thing that needed to be punished in law by giving uh, by reserving special rights for uh, straight Americans that were not uh, provided to others. That wasn't something that happened overnight. It was a cultural shift, and it took decades to engineer. The second Obergefell dropped, we got articles as saying this is the next frontier, and then mm-hmm. it, the frontier was never broken. The mm-hmm. wagon trains weren't dispatched to tame the frontier. It was just kind of assumed that the frontier was closed. This is not how things work in this country. So yeah, if you're going to get a cultural backlash, and yeah, and things don't always move in a straight line. It goes back and forth. So I I anticipate that we will have a back and forth in transgender rights, and it'll take a very long time to popularize the view that that progressives want, but they don't want that time. 
They think it needs to be popularized now, and they can force force it on you and impose it on you and use the commanding heights of the culture to rain down opprobrium on you if you disagree. And yeah, good for that's about time that we've experienced some sort of a backlash to that. So Jim Garrity, exit question to you in a general election, assuming that Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee, his position on trans issues, no matter who he's uh, running against on the Republican side, will hurt him at least somewhat politically. <laughs> Rich, it's not going to hurt me because they're they're throwing gay people out of restaurants these days. <laughs> you know that? Oh, in, in America in 2022. What, what year? It's 2023. What? Well, e- even today, it's society. Yeah, my guess is. You sound like uh, Gregory Peck. <laughs> that's that's my general cranky old man voice. But yes, um, yeah, that uh, it, like, yeah, Biden will be effectively pro-trans by every measure in the twenty twenty four election, and it'll hurt him. Uh, yeah, yeah, Charlie. I think it might hurt him, but I think it is instructive that in Jim's impression, he has. Biden saying things about trans people that pretty much everyone would agree with him about. That is, you know, people don't want those who are different to be thrown out of restaurants. One of the reasons that gay marriage prevailed was that those who pushed it did so in the language of liberalism small l, liberalism. Mm -hmm. It's not just that they appeal to some conservative cultural institutions. It's that they asked a question that is really poignant for most Americans and that is built into the country's DNA, and that is, how does this hurt you? Now, that's not to say that there aren't counter-arguments, although I am pro-gay marriage, but that resonated. The pro-trans argument that is advanced most commonly tries to tap into that. But actually, that's not how people experience it day to day. And that is a juxtaposition that is really hurting the trans movement. Because while they are told this is just about equality, they see themselves being put through training sessions at work or told they have to use pronouns or they see their daughter who's trained for five or six years to be an excellent runner or basketball player or what you will, losing out to someone who is obviously a man, and they say, I don't like that. Now, Biden does at some level understand this. So if he sticks purely to the liberal rhetoric, it might not hurt him that much. If he continues to embrace the crazy, as he has started to do, then yes, it's going to hurt him. And he won't be able to run away from it because his party and his White House has been co-opted. If Republicans can successfully exploit, and I use that word uh, non-pejoratively, if Republicans can exploit this issue and say directly, do you believe that men should be able to compete in women's sports? Answer the question. Then they will uh, achieve Uh, some political gain. But if they keep it within this realm, if they sound intolerant or reactionary, Biden has proven quite adept at dealing with it. Noah? Yeah, I I echo Charlie's point. Um, This hurts him only if Republicans can effectively thread the needle by making the case, as Charlie said, um, for why this is about a universal application of rights and privileges and not a special set of rights and privileges that have become a zero-sum game 
where they get it and you don't? So I think it'll it'll hurt him. Obviously, it won't be a major issue, but it's going to hurt him at the margins. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you were recently enjoying the Southwest Waterfront in D.C. Yeah, and if you haven't lived in the D.C. area for a very long stretch, there was a fish market. There were a couple of little places down by the harbor, but it was a, a stretch of, I guess technically it's where the Anacostia and, and – uh, Potomac meat, and it really just seemed like one of the most major underdeveloped wasted spaces of waterfront property in the city. And probably about a decade or two, they, about a decade back, they started really building up, putting in a bunch of new hotels, new restaurants, new shopping district. Um, and it started out really nice. And, and just this past weekend, my uh, wife and I got to start walking down there. And they've expanded in the last couple of years. I guess probably the last time we'd been there I think we were here last summer. We just didn't notice it. I, I discovered for the first time, I did not realize that the District of Columbia has a memorial to the men who died in the Titanic giving up their spaces in the lifeboats to women and children. Um, I posted a picture of it on Instagram, and somebody's like, is that in, in Ireland? I'm like, no, this is, believe it or not, it's in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. Um, so obviously, it's just it's been developed very nicely, built up, uh, and, you know, I mean, some people might accuse this of being gentrifying, but certainly lots of people seem to be having a very nice time. So uh, just a nice spot in D.C. and good for D.C. for, you know, a lot of things where things are going wrong in this city. Uh, this is one that was lively and thriving, and everyone was out enjoying good weather, and, uh, you know, D.C. does have some nice places. So Noah, some some crazy going going ons for you. It rained. <laughs> it's so exceptionally banal. Uh, yeah, that was my the highlight of my uh, day yesterday. I talked about this on the last podcast during that uh, Canadian smoke event. Um, it, it had been so dry in the Northeast for three weeks. It hadn't rained, and that was kind of scary because it smelled like there was a fire next door, and the conditions were present for a fire next door. So. I'm kind of a lawn guy. I like my lawn. It's been dry for three weeks. It's all dead. It looks hideous. I'm very annoyed about it. So it's a welcome relief to have some, like, one and a half inches of rain yesterday, which is very good. So, Charlie, you have some wine you ordered when you were away in Italy arrive. Absolutely. That's right. We, in Italy, went wine tasting. It was a magical day. We were in the middle of this glorious countryside, this beautiful old building, and inside a little plate of local sausage and pecorino cheese, and we tried all of these different wines. And of course, you know, the more wine that you drink, you're in a better mood. And so at the end, they say, no, does anyone want to order any of this back to the United States? I said, yes, I'll take it all. Um, Well, it hasn't all arrived yet, unfortunately, but enough yesterday came to the house to keep me in good spirits for a few months. Good. So I was away in Lisbon, Portugal over the weekend at a business conference and gave remarks at a a dinner. And afterwards, this this French lady came up to me and it's kind of crowded room. It's sort of hard to hear. And says, I was a Kuniyevos. Now, whatever that, I don't know what that is. I know what you're saying, but uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, 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 that's great. She's like, well, what what do you call them? What do you call them? Jet jet fighters? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we call them jet fighters, whatever. And it turned out she she was a fighter pilot who had bombed ISIS in Syria and Iraq in like 2016 and 2017. Just total badass. You know, she wrote messages, you know, with love, you know, 
with on the bombs that she was dropping. And she's this this complete, like stereotypically stylish French lady. I don't know enough about clothes, but you know, she was wearing like five inch heels. And you just never of all the people in this room of two hundred people or whatever it was, the one person that, that you would vote had never bombed ISIS would be this lady. <laughs> and she'd bombed ISIS and, and just uh, a, a tremendous, a tremendous lot of fun. And she's actually the godmother of the French uh, foreign foreign legion. So it was an honor to meet her with that. It's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's so, your pick? So I'm going to go with the entire uh, upcoming June 26th issue now available. Whoa, it's a big Plus. pick. Now, it's here's a big, the thing. bold pick. The, the, basically You're picking the, yourself, well, right? I was going to recommend Technically. every... Rich, can I finish? <laughs> I was going to recommend every essay on masculinity and fatherhood, except mine, because mm-hmm. it would be gauche to, to recommend myself. But there's a lot of, uh, I think it was Jack Butler had said this is a topic that's kind of percolating out there in the conservative uh, chatter sphere and that deserved attention. And I think uh, the idea of doing it around Father's Day was a great, great one idea. Um, Ricky Schlott talks about rules for dating. I'm not going to lie. That's not the, the advice I've needed for a long stretch. <laughs> MBD talks about the smartphone and its deleterious effects on your life. Heedley Heath Manning on boys needing a pathway to manhood. That's something I absolutely endorse. And Maddie Kearns writes about masculinity as a prison or escape and takes on the abominable Andrew Tate. Uh, Catherine Howell has a beautiful remembrance of her father and Robert P. George writing about running into the fire. They are all excellent essays. And I guess mine's pretty good, too. Noah Rothman, what's your pick? This is a pretty Trump-heavy episode, so I'm going to go with uh, Dan McLaughlin's Donald Trump is a waste of the right's ah. political energy. Ah, ha, ha. Um, one of the things Republic voters really dislike, Republican voters really dislike, is when Donald Trump talks about himself. When he talks about 2020, when he talks about his political issues, his picadillos, they like it when he talks about issues. But as Dan notes, this is just by virtue of the man and the circumstances he surrounded himself with. This is really what you're going to get for the rest of Donald Trump's candidacy and God save us the general election if he gets there. Joy Cook, what's your pick? Well, I'm going to do what Jim didn't do directly and pick Jim's piece from the magazine, Notes on Fatherhood, which uh, you should read. I have to say, Jim, it did make me feel a little bit old, though, because you started by saying back in 2015, my best friend Cam Edwards and I co-wrote Heavy Lifting, and I thought, really, was it that long ago? As I say, if you think it was a long time ago, yeah, it was the exact same feeling <laughs> on the set. Yeah. So my pick, I mentioned it earlier, is Andy McCarthy's has a series going on on bad arguments being made in defense of of Donald Trump in the uh, classified document uproar. And I, the, the first one, uh, Trump indictment, frivolous argument, number one. It's a really, it's a catchy headline. As I told Andy this earlier, it's its among the best opinion pieces I've ever read. There's something about it. It's just so cogent. Not that, not that everything Andy writes isn't, isn't cogent, but, but it's clear as a bell. It deals with every single permutation of this argument that the President, Presidential Records Act is some, somehow an out for Trump here. Uh, so it's airtight and ex- extremely persuasive. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Youth Podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Youth Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Noah. Thanks to Maiden and Waterstone. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.